Hey everyone, I want to let you know that support for today's episode comes from AL.com, Alabama's number one media site, covering in-depth news, special interest stories, college football, and everything there is to love about living in Alabama, accessible via desktop and mobile apps. Check them out at AL.com. Welcome to the Arc Stories Podcast. So there I was, standing in front of a group of strangers attending a football game, being cursed out about Doritos. A minute or two later, Taylor Swift comes out and she like smiles that all-American Nashville smile and she she introduces herself, she shakes my hand, hey I'm Taylor, hey I'm the groom. We are bringing you true personal stories from the heart of the South told in the Southern tradition. I caught just enough of the video to see a very large man making this slow walk toward a van, wearing absolutely nothing but his underwear and coated in grease. And I'm going to stop right there, and the rest of it is history. I'm your host, Chris Kinsley. The vast majority of our stories here on the podcast come from our live events, and today we want to bring you two of them from our most recent event from just a couple of weeks ago. Our theme for that night was Lost in Translation, Stories of Misunderstanding. Now, there are all kinds of different reasons people can have misunderstandings, but in our first story, it is because the events our storyteller is trying to understand are so terrible and so tragic. She ends up lost in a sense because not only does she struggle with how to make other people understand, but she is actually having trouble coming to an understanding herself. Before we get to it, let me just say there is some brief adult language in the story and it also covers some pretty heavy subjects. So every story we feature here on Arc Stories is personal, but they don't get much more personal than this. And we are honored to be able to bring it to you now. Here's storyteller Christina Franklin. On April 27th, 2011, I was pregnant with my second child. Not super pregnant, 14 weeks along, um, and it was just a normal day. My husband was traveling for work, and on the list of things to do starting at 8 a.m. that morning was drop my daughter off at daycare, run to a doctor's appointment real quick, and run to work. Super normal. It was a little exciting though, because that doctor's appointment was my first ultrasound that I was gonna get uh, for the pregnancy. It was my second baby, and so I didn't do the eight week confirmed pregnancy one, because I knew I was pregnant. Um, And so I was kind of excited that I was gonna get to see her for the first time. So load up the car, head to school, and then I got a phone call from a friend who said the daycare was closed because there was another tornado warning, and they were better safe than sorry, policy, blah, blah, blah. Um, which I was very grateful for because they had my child, Uh, but it was annoying, let's be honest. So you kind of just do what parents do when you get a hiccup in the schedule, you just turn the car around and take your kid with you to your doctor's appointment. And honestly, I was kind of excited. Uh, We had just told everybody about the baby, uh, including Ella, who was three years old at the time, and so I was gonna get to show her the baby for the first time too. So it was exciting and, and annoying, but also, super exciting. So 
So we get to the doctor's office, we go back to the ultrasound room, and we climb up onto this really soft table with this soft sheet on it, and the room is dark, and it's warm, and the tech comes in, and she's smiling, she's super happy to see us, and we're super excited to be there. I was telling Ella that we're gonna meet baby Kate for the first time. So Ella crawls up with me, we're in the bed, and the tech is getting the equipment ready, and we're talking about what's gonna happen, and the gel comes, like the, the big warm gel on your belly, and she drops the wand onto my stomach, and then up on the screen popped up baby Kate. And she was beautiful, perfect, this tiny little baby. And I said, Ella, Ella, look, that's, that's your little sister, that's baby Kate. And she stared up the screen, she looked back at me, back up at the screen, she just wasn't getting it, right? She's three. So I was explaining to her that the baby was in my tummy and that was the picture we were looking at and the wand is a camera and I'm like how am I explaining this to a three-year-old but she was kind of getting it and as I'm telling her this out of the corner of my eye I noticed this look on the tech's face and it kind of jolted me out of that moment that I was having with Ella and I just looked at her and said what and she didn't answer And it was just quiet, and I said, I said, what? She said, I'm just trying to find the heartbeat. And I froze. I don't even think I was breathing. I was sitting there holding my daughter, just trying to make my insides quiet so she could hear the baby. And it was quiet, and Ella didn't say anything, and there wasn't a heartbeat. And the tech took the wand off my stomach and Kate's picture left the screen and she said, I'm sorry, Miss Branham, but your pregnancy is no longer viable. And I said, what? I don't, I don't understand. I'm sorry. Wh what? And she said, if you just get your clothes back on and get dressed and head into the exam room, the doctor will answer any questions you have. And I said, no. Nope. Nope, 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 that's not what's happening right now. I need you to take your little wand thingy, and I need you to put it back on my belly, and I need you to find the baby, and she's, yes, and I was making her, I was rude, and I was angry, and I was so scared. And because that amazing human being probably has to have that conversation two or three times a week, and because she knew what was happening in my soul at that moment, she put the wand back on my belly, and Kate popped back up on the screen. And my hands were shaking, and my voice was just full of panic. And I said, see, there she is. She's fine, right? And the tech said, no, I'm so sorry. There's no heartbeat. And if you look here on the side, this red webbing indicates that the fetus has passed away probably sometime in the last three to five days. And I just didn't understand. And I just didn't know how I was going to survive that. But there I was. And I had an instruction onto the next room. So I gathered Ellen. I'm trying to wipe the gel off my belly and get dressed and keep it together in some way, because I have my three-year-old there. And, but she knew something was really wrong. And she said, what's wrong, Mommy? And I didn't know 
what to tell her because everything was wrong. And I just looked at her and said, baby Kate died. And she just looked up at me and said, why mommy? I didn't, I didn't know why. And I sure didn't know how to explain it to her. So I just said what came to my mind that baby Kate was sick and that she couldn't be born now except in our hearts. So we went down the hall to the exam room and we walked in and the room was bright and it was cold and we climbed back onto another table but it had that stupid crinkle paper on it that was really just loud and uncomfortable and we were sitting up there and the doctor came in and said, I'm just so very sorry. Um, she said that 20% of miscarriages in the second trimester uh, 20% of women who have uh, miscarriages have them in the second trimester. It's very common. She said there's nothing that you did to cause it, and there was nothing you could have done to prevent it. Um, just go home and get some rest, and I'll call you first thing in the morning, and we'll schedule, we'll schedule your DNC. Well, I didn't even know what that was. I didn't understand anything that was happening to me. But I gathered Ella and our things, and we went home and got into our pajamas and crawled into bed with some books and tried to rest. Um, I called my husband and he said he was on his way home as fast as possible. And I called my mom and we cried. And I don't really remember very much more about that day until my husband called again and he asked where we were. But this time his voice was full of panic. And he said, where are you guys? And I said, we're home. We're home, we're in bed. And he said, take Ella and get into the center of the house and get into a closet right now. And I said, what? what? What are you talking about? He said, I'm in the airport. I'm watching a tornado rip through Tuscaloosa. It is heading toward you guys. And if it jumps the river, it is gonna hit our house. And I'm like, what? I, I don't understand. A or like a real tornado? I, tornadoes can jump rivers like I don't understand I didn't know what he was saying because we hadn't been watching TV that day we hadn't been watching the news I didn't know what was going on and he said get Ella and get into the closet and honestly in that moment I wanted to die I wanted that tornado to come through and just erase everything that had happened to me that day. But I looked at Ella and I said, we've got to survive this. So I grabbed a comforter off the bed and we got into the closet and Ella thought it was a game. She was fine. And we got under the covers and we hung out and you could hear the storm outside, but it didn't really sound like a big tornado. And I guess I really didn't believe that it was really gonna happen because there have been tornado warnings like all week long and the sirens were going off, but they always go off. It's Alabama, tornado season, that's just what happens. And so when the rain stopped, we got out of the closet and got in bed and just went to sleep. My husband made his way home and I remember waking up for just a second and my pillow was just soaking wet. I had been crying in my sleep and he, he just said, you're not gonna believe what's happened to our town. So the next morning, we woke up 
to complete chaos. The destruction and the terror that that tornado rained down on Tuscaloosa was just unimaginable. The doctor called right away the next morning and she said that she wasn't gonna be able to get me into an OR anytime soon because the hospital was full of storm victims and to just hang in there and that she would call me the minute she had one open. But if I started to run a fever or if my body began to spontaneously abort, the pregnancy, I, I needed to get to the emergency, emergency room right away. <coughs> and I was terrified. And I thought, God, now I have to survive this. So we just did what everyone in Tuscaloosa did that day. We got together with a group of friends and we you know, were all watching kids and we were making food and we were going out on missions to sort of help people that had had their houses ripped apart or that were missing pets and family members and we just worked and we helped and I just cried all day long. But nobody asked me why. They assumed that I was overwhelmed or upset because of the tornado or that I was emotional because I was pregnant. And, and they didn't get it. They didn't understand that it wasn't the devastation that had happened outside, that it was the devastation that had happened inside. I wasn't sad about the tornado. Deep down in my soul, where I didn't want anyone to see, I was happy about it. I was happy that I had something else to think about. I was grateful that I had something else to concentrate on, that I had something else to think about after what happened. So we made several trips that week to our church to help you know, organize supplies and to drop people off and to bring food to people who were homebound. And at one point, I pulled my priest aside and I said, hey, um, could you do me a favor? I need you to perform a baptism and a burial rite for me. I mean, not for me, for us, if you don't mind. And he didn't understand. And so I explained to him that I had lost my baby and that I couldn't get to the hospital because of all of the storm victims and that I wanted her to be baptized in case I miscarried her. And also I wanted to have her final blessing delivered to her in the event that I do ever get to bury her. And he just, without skipping a beat, gathered his things and we went into the sanctuary. And it was dark because there were no lights and it was warm because there wasn't any air conditioning. And we were standing there in work boots and jeans and he put on his vestment and he delivered a baptism burial rite combo situation um, breaking, I'm sure, every rule in the Episcopal handbook. He, he placed his hands on my stomach and he said, what's the child's name? And I said, Kate. And he said, God, entrust Kate into your never failing love. And I stood there and I cried and he performed the ritual and he finished with Blessed are those who die in the Lord, for they rest from their labors. 
And then we went back to work. Kate and I labored together in the only way that we could. We were helping people. We were helping people who had lost everything in the storm. And the doctor called and said that there was finally an OR open and to please come in right away. So I went down and had the DNC, which I learned is the procedure that you undergo to have a baby removed from your womb. And the surgery went well, it was fast, there were no complications. They put me to sleep, and when I woke up, she was gone. There was no labor. There was no pain. There was nothing to mark her passing. She was gone. My husband went to pick her up the next day, and she came home in a, in a tiny little plastic jar inside of a paper bag. It looked like a little kid's lunch. And I missed her. I missed her so much. And I wanted to bury her. I wanted to return her to the earth. But I didn't know how to arrange a funeral for a little jar of tissue. Because in the state of Alabama, if the baby's not 20 weeks, they don't count it as a death which is bullshit. It absolutely was a death. Kate died. My baby died before she was even born. So because I have amazing friends who love me very much, we went the next day to the children's garden at the Arboretum. It was totally illegal what we did. <laughs> but I did not care. The entire town was in complete chaos. Nobody was watching what we were doing. And I wanted her buried somewhere where I could go visit her. And I wanted her to be around children when they played. And I just didn't ever want her to be alone. So we did a Christian burial and a Jewish burial, and a Buddhist burial, <laughs> and some Wiccan rituals also. <laughs> I was not having a crisis of faith. I just didn't understand what to do for her. I didn't understand how to say goodbye. And in the event that I have misunderstood religion my entire life, I just didn't want her to get to wherever she was going and be like, oh, you didn't do the right thing, and so we just did it all. And as I was kneeled on the ground, just crying, just weeping over her little body, I just, I knew I had to say goodbye to her and that I had to survive that also. And I did. And the hardest part now is the anniversary. Because every year, on April 27th, there are news stories and video coverage and remembrances and ceremonies and lists and lists and lists of everything that happened that day. And, and people still miss it. They don't get it. They don't get why that day was so hard for me. 
They don't get why I weep for her every year. They don't get that when they read the list of the names of the people who died that day, that her name's not on it. And so I'm standing here today, and I'm doing really well. I got divorced. Um, I'm raising my eight-year-old. I'm working. And I started a doula practice that specializes in bereavement. And this year, on the anniversary of the tornado, I was holding my certification in my hand that allows me to help women who have experienced this kind of loss. And I'm able to teach them how to survive this. Thank you. Christina Frantum is the creative director for the media group at the University of Alabama. You can learn more about her at her website, christinafrantum.com. Of course, some misunderstandings occur because what the people involved are trying to say is literally lost in translation because they actually speak different languages. So then, how do they get over that and actually come to an understanding? Well, we'll find out in our next story after the break. We all love stories. And if you're anything like me, then the stories you love the most are the ones that do much more than simply entertain you. They move you or inspire you or help you make sense of the world around you. And that's why I am so thankful for AL.com. They are so much more than a news site and always go well beyond a just the facts approach to the news of the day. Like us, the good people at AL.com are storytellers who help connect me to everything that's going on in my community, in my state, and even to what's going on around the world. Plus, as Alabama's number one media site, AL.com is the perfect platform to help you tell the story of your product or business. So engage with them today. They've made it so easy, their site is right there in their name. Simply visit AL.com. So how do people manage to come to an understanding when they don't even speak the same language? Well, our next storyteller discovers the answer to that question, and I assure you, it is not what you're expecting. Here's storyteller Brad Tolan. A few years ago, I went to Japan as part of a cultural exchange program. As part of that program, I was told that I would be spending a week or so with a Japanese family who may or may not speak English. And so I was excited to go, and a party was arranged for us all Americans to go there and then to meet our Japanese host families. And it was at this party that I met Keiko. And Keiko came up and sort of introduced herself to me, but she motioned for me to follow her, and I did. And then she motioned for me to go out into the parking lot with her, and I did. And then she motioned for me to get into her car, and I did. Now, normally I am not in the habit of getting into cars with complete strangers when I'm 10,000 miles away from home, and I don't speak the language, but I figured, Japan. And so I did. 
And so for the next hour, Keiko and I tried valiantly to communicate with each other. And in the course of that hour, as we drove through the streets of the city of Hitachi, I learned three things about Keiko. One, Keiko is married. Two, Keiko has two children. And three, Keiko speaks even less English than I thought she originally did. So we pull up to a house, I'm guessing it's Keiko's, and she motions for me to follow her inside, and she takes me to a bedroom, and she leaves me there. And I assume, okay, and this is where I'm staying, all right? And so I start to unpack, and jet lag begins to take hold. And I'm getting really tired really fast. And that's probably why I didn't notice the petite elderly Japanese woman that had come in the room behind me and then started talking to me really loudly, rapid fire Japanese. And I spun around holding a big bundle of my underwear and I just looked at her. And she kept on talking. I thought maybe I was in her room, but she was totally not cool with me being there. So I didn't know what was going on, and it just went on and on and on and on. And then behind her, a little elderly Japanese man came in, and he started talking to her, and she continued talking to me, and then she waved him off dismissively and turned back around and gave me the biggest, most sarcastic eye roll I have ever seen. And I teach teenagers, right? And so I don't know what's going on. I'm still just standing there looking at this conversation chain going on, and then he reaches up and he puts his hand on her shoulder and they both turn around and start talking to each other, go into the hallway, across the hall to another door, quickly walk inside and slam it behind them. What was that? I had no idea. I was literally sitting there shaking. I was so like confused by what was going on. And I certainly couldn't go and ask Keiko because literally I could not ask Keiko. <laughs> Well, a little while later, I was summoned downstairs, and we sat on the floor, and Keiko and I had a very quiet dinner opposite each other. And she served me some green leafy things I couldn't identify, and some fried things I certainly couldn't identify. And in the middle of this awkwardness, the front door opened, and a man walked in, and he walked right over to me, he stuck out his arm, and in crystal clear English, he said, hello, my name is? And I sat there, and I looked at him, I was like, I don't know. And he goes, Binko. Well, of course it is. And so Binko explains that he is actually Keiko's husband and that it's a duplex and those are Binko's parents. Those are his parents living in the house with us. So I'm totally relieved. I didn't hallucinate at all. <sighs> My fears are relieved. I decide now is the perfect time for me to go to bed. It's 7.30 at night, but you know, I'm a million miles away from home. Call it a day, count your losses, get up and get a fresh start the next day. And so I excused myself and I went to bed and I slept hard that night, really, really hard, until 3.30. And then I woke up at 3.30 in the morning, wide awake, like four cups of coffee, wide awake. And in my delusional state, I figured the best thing I could do at four o'clock in the morning is to go out and explore the city of Hitachi on my own. And so I quietly got dressed and I tiptoed down the hallway and I put my shoes on and I quietly opened the door so I wouldn't wake anybody else up. And I walked out into the big city of Hitachi. And let me tell you, at four o'clock in the morning, 
there is nothing to see or do in the big city of Hitachi. No people, no cars, nothing open, nowhere. And I gave up and I turned around and I went back home in total failure. And I quietly opened the front door and I bent over and I took my shoes off and I added them to the stack by the door. And when I stood up, the old lady was standing at the end of the hall looking at me again. And she didn't care that everybody else in the house was asleep. And she started talking crazily to me in nothing but Japanese. And she started motioning for me to follow her. And I said, okay. And so I followed her. And we went down the hall and she went to her door. And then she opened the door and I stepped inside and it was like Alice going through the looking glass. Suddenly I found myself in her kitchen. And I looked around, and there were pots and pans and dishes and glass jars and everything piled up. And where there wasn't something piled up on a counter, there was a crocheted doily. <laughs> and I looked at this woman who was still talking to me. And I looked at the kitchen, and weirdly, it was suddenly all very familiar. The kitchen and the old lady reminded me of my grandmother. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that my grandmother ate with chopsticks. And I'm not going to tell you that she ate exotic seafood. And she certainly wasn't Japanese, none of those. However, at this point in my life, I had one surviving grandparent, and I had grown very close to her. She was 96 years old. And if I was going to describe her to you, I would probably tell you that she was a weird mix between, do you remember the character Weezer in Steel Magnolias? <laughs> she was a little bit Weezer and a whole lot Mr. Magoo. But she had the, uh, the added bonus of not only being mostly blind, she was also mostly deaf. And she had talked very loudly to compensate. But for whatever reason, we had grown very close, and I really enjoyed sitting and listening to her, and she enjoyed having an audience. And it suddenly struck me that this must be a very similar situation. So here was this elderly lady, and I, we were bonding, and she kept talking, and I was, I was thinking, oh, this is such a warm feeling. And I noticed she keeps doing this to me. Like, what is that? And I turn over and I look and oh, there's the old man from the other night sitting in the floor at a little table and he's waving me over. And I'm like, oh, okay, sure. So I go over and sit down next to him. He's reading a newspaper and he pulls out a piece of the newspaper and hands it to me, all in Japanese. <laughs> and I play along and start reading it. You know what I'm saying? I flip in the pages and looking at the pictures and ooing and aahing over everything inside. And then the old lady comes back over and she gives me a cup of green tea and she lays down a plate with a sliced apple on it. And then she sits down at the table with us and they turn on the TV. And we start watching something that I can only describe to you as being a cross between Good Morning America and the $10,000 pyramid, <laughs> right? And so they're watching this weird show and occasionally they would point at the TV and they would laugh and then they would look at me and explain the joke and I would laugh, right? And we would have, we were just having the best time. And in my head, I realized I am kind of falling in love with these people, right? These people are going to be my Japanese grandparents. I am going to call these people in my head, Grandmama-san and Grandpapa-san, right? No, in Japanese, san is a suffix, it is a sign of endearment, right, of respect. It's like Mr. or Mrs. in English. So to me, it wasn't offensive, but who knows. But I called him in my head, Grandmama-san, Grandpapa-san. And then when breakfast was over, Grandmama-san got up to clean the table, and me being a good Southerner, I helped. And she was very impressed with this. And she thanked me, and she bowed to me, and she patted me on the head. <laughs> and about that time, she started motioning for me to follow again. And she led me to the back door of the house. And we went outside. 
And the first thing I noticed was on the side of the house, there was this weird water feature, a koi pond and a fountain, but it was in a weird location. But Grandmama-san really wanted to show me her vegetable garden. And so we started walking around, and she was pointing out various different things and just talking up a storm. And I was nodding and ooing and awing over the plants. But as far as I know, she could very well have been saying, that damn neighbor's dog is crapping in the yard again. <laughs> but nonetheless... I was there, I was present in the moment, and when she bent over to start pulling weeds, I had a flashback. I grew up with my grandparents who always had gardens, and so when I saw an elderly person weeding a garden, what did I do? I started weeding that garden too, and she was thoroughly impressed by this. And about that time, Binko came back out and said, mm, party's over, we gotta go, we got a little adventure for the day. And so Grandma son and I bowed to each other, and I left. Now, Binko, in his wisdom, had decided that the thing that a guy in his 30s would really want to do on his first time in Japan is go to a museum full of Japanese teacups. <laughs> and so luckily for Binko, and for me, I guess, there was the world's biggest Japanese teacup museum right there in Hitachi. And so that's where we went. And we spent the whole day <laughs> looking at Japanese teacups. I wasn't terribly into it, but it did give me the opportunity to talk to Binko and get to know a little bit about his family. And he explained to me that his father had been an executive with the Hitachi Corporation for many years. But his mother was a master or mistress of the Japanese tea ceremony. Now, the Japanese tea ceremony goes back to at least the 1500s in Japan. It is an incredibly well choreographed way to make a cup of tea but it is so much more than simply making a cup of tea. It is full of tradition and movement. Each movement, each flick of the wrist, each stirring of the spoon, each whisking the whisk has a symbolic meaning to it. And it is something that is done for a revered guest in your home. Grandmama son was so well regarded at doing this in Japan that people from all over Japan and from all over the world came to her home to take lessons from her. I was now very impressed with Grandmama son. And that night, when I came back home, I was gobsmacked by what I found. In the room where we had had dinner the previous night, I saw a complete transformation. The back wall of the room was now gone. It was exposed to the backyard, and centered in the view was that water feature, the pond in the back. Where the table had been, there was now a fire pit. And above that, a thick chain hung, hanging a kettle of boiling water over the flames. There was a red mat on the ground with spoons, whisks, bowls, and cups. And standing in the middle of it all was Grandmama son. And she bowed very deeply and very seriously to me, and she motioned for me to come inside. And over the course of the next three hours, I sat in front of her while she conducted the full tea ceremony in my honor. It was one of the most moving experiences of my life. And I can't even explain to you the nuance of it, but it touched me deeply. Well, over the course of the next week, we all seemed to fall into a routine with each other. Every morning, I would get up at some ungodly hour and go for a walk through the neighborhood. I would come back home and have breakfast with Grandmama-san and Grandpapa-san. And when our game show slash morning news was over, I would go with Binko and or Keiko on an adventure for the day. And at night, as I was getting ready to go to bed, Grandmama-san would come into my room. 
and she would sit down and she would talk to me in Japanese <laughs> for a good 15-20 minutes. I always assumed she was telling me about her day. She may have been bitching about Grandpapa's son, I don't know. <laughs> they had been married a long time. But she would always leave by patting me on the head and giving me a little piece of chocolate. Well, a few months after I got back home, my real grandmother died. And after the funeral and the days, as the days went on, I thought a lot about my grandmother, and I thought a lot about Grandmama's son. And I thought about the connection that I had with both of these women, and how touched I was by both of them, despite the fact that they had an enormous cultural divide between them. And in the case of Grandmama's son, there was also an enormous language barrier. But in the short time she and I had together, she profoundly touched me and changed me as a person. And that was something I didn't need a translation for. Thank you. Brad Toland is a teacher, lawyer, and writer. You can learn more about him and read about his travels at his website, tolandtravels.com. So if you enjoyed today's stories, we would love to have you join us for more at our next live event. It is coming up next month on Saturday, September 17th at the Avon Theater in Birmingham, Alabama. Our theme will be Go Fight Win, stories about sports. We are still looking for some storytellers, so let us know if you have a story to tell. You can do that and get your tickets for our event all at our website, arcstories.com. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening to the Arc Stories podcast. I'm Chris Kinsley, and I've been your host. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Chris Kinsley. Arc Stories is at all those places too, at Arc Stories. This podcast is produced by me and Arc Stories director, Taylor Robinson. Preston Lovingood composed our theme and our ad music is from Ben Beany. Special thanks to Eric Chapman from Symmetric Sound for his audio expertise, as well as to Aaron Moon, Betsy Lee, and Nate Dreger for making this episode possible. We would love it if you subscribe to this podcast and let us and others know what you think. The best way to do that is to leave us a review on iTunes. I personally read every single one of them. So along those lines, I want to say a big thank you to MartinCR70 and Monkaroot7 for your recent reviews. You can also visit our website, arcstories.com. There you can listen to other stories, stay up to date with all of our events, and even submit your own story to tell. After all, we are always asking, what's your story?